0: Good morning, Harvest Church. My name's Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. And it is um, an unthinkable, unimaginable joy to get to to be here with you and with God's Word and with this King uh, to be built up. We'd love for us to pray over this time and then we can dive in. God, I and we are, are desperate for you. And we need... Resources from heaven to come, and we ask you to make us and form us according to your likeness to be your people. God, leverage this time to grow us as individuals and to build up this body for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are going to be in Mark chapter 11 and... We are going to be talking about the triumphal entry and the title of the is The King Has Come. And the king has come. Not LeBron, not Michael Jackson, not Dale Earnhardt, not Elvis, no, a different king. You see, we love to have kings, we love to be kings, but we typically love to be and have certain kinds of kings, fast kings, pretty kings, handsome, strong, athletic, powerful kings. We love to have beautiful, successful kings. We're drawn to that kind of prestige and power and polishedness. But this king that we're going to see and that we've just heard, read about, this is a different kind of king. He's bringing a different kind of kingdom. And this morning, this king and his kingdom are on a crash course with us. And this text matters this morning because it forces us into that collision and it forces us into a decision because we need a king. It's why we have posters of cool, powerful, handsome, beautiful people on our walls as kids. We want a king. It's why we gravitate toward presidents and leaders and athletes and models and all kinds of influencers. We want a king. We were made for a king. You need a king. Your job and your vocation and your part of it needs a king your marriage needs a king your family needs a king we need a king and we're going to see that a king has come maybe this morning you're in a spot and you reject jesus you don't care about jesus you're building the kingdom of self and you've rallied other kings and other kingdoms to help that work and i'm praying this morning that this text would be the means by which god would grant you eyes to see the futility and the vanity of those kingdoms, and your kingship, and to repent before him. Maybe this morning you're indifferent, you're on the fence, you're not sure what you're going to do with your life, what king you're going to follow. You're in and out, you're lukewarm, you're, you're trying to figure it out. And my prayer is that this text would be God's tool to cause your eyes and your heart to behold this king of glory and grace. That This morning, maybe the, for the first time, your actual heart would be stunned by him. And that that beauty would awaken a passion and a joy for him. And maybe this morning you are a worshiper of Jesus. He's your king. You've been born again. You're following him. And my prayer is that much like a long romance, that this morning God would woo you deeper. Just deeper to see this king. Deeper to worship him and enjoy him and to yield more of your life to be shaped by him. And this morning we see that a king has come. In Mark 11 Is the pivot point in this book where we now transition not only to the last third of the book, but that one whole third of the book is given to one week in the life of Christ. This last week leading up to his death and resurrection. And Mark's been motoring us through the book, immediately doing all these kinds of things. And some have said that it's sort of like a long introduction into this now holding pattern. Overseeing this king come to do what he had set out to do. You see, the stage is set. This king is entering Jerusalem in this passage. He's where he was always meant to come, to do what he was always meant to do. This is the son of David. He is the eternal king. He's come to sit on his throne. This is his city where he's come to become and do all that God had set him out to do. Danny Aiken said that this is basically the, the unmasking, the, the disguise is coming off. Jesus has been sort of hiding who he's been and, and what he's come to do. And he's been telling people to be quiet. And now at the top of the Mount of Olives, he's coming down into Jerusalem, making it very clear who he is. The king has come. But how did he come? What did he do? And what does that mean for these people in this text? And what does that mean for us? Well, let's find out. First, we see that the king comes in unwavering faithfulness. These are verses 1 through 6, where we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Verse 1, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Verse 1 shows us Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. He's coming to Jerusalem because he is an unflinching and unwaveringly faithful king. He's not coming on a Wild West horse theft. He's coming to fulfill all of redemptive history. He's coming to do what God set him out to do. He's coming in a a full fulfillment of everything that God the Father had planned to do through the perfect sacrifice of his son. This is why he came. He had to come to Jerusalem. In his three previous foretellings of his death and resurrection, there's language like, I must suffer. The Son of Man is going to be delivered. We're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered. Him going to this city to do this work was never in question. It was never a contingency plan. This was the plan from before time began, that the eternal Son of God would take on flesh and come to this mountain above this city to descend down into it to do this thing. All history has been centered around this man coming to this town to do this this thing, and thank God he is not distracted. He's not confused. He's not disoriented. He's resolute. He's committed to doing what God the Father had sent him to do, to rescue a people for his God and to usher them into his kingdom. As he has said earlier, he has come to seek and save the lost the king coming this way in Jerusalem, the way he's coming here on this cult, as we see in this passage, it's all Christ making it crystal clear that he's not just some random man. He's not just been some cool guy doing amazing, unthinkable things all throughout the area. No, he is God. He's come to save a desperate people in desperate need of a real and righteous and forever king. Zechariah nine nine says that, re, that the people of God should rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's come. He is this man and he's come in unwavering faithfulness to the scriptures and to his God who would... He's sending him to seek and save the lost. But before this king of unwavering faithfulness, I find myself so unlike this king, so wavering, so faltering, so unsteady, so uncommitted, lacking so much resolution to obey and be faithful to God, prone to choose sin, to choose self, to, to, to sit on the throne rather than abdicate the throne. And before this king, a prayer is that he would make me and make us less like us and more like himself, as John the Baptist said, that we would decrease and that he would increase. The king has come. He's come in unwavering faithfulness. May that cause us to abound in gratitude that he's Far more faithful, far more committed, far more resolute, far more passionate about God's will and God's glory than we ever could. And he's inviting us into his kingdom. Secondly, in these same verses, we see not only has the king come in unwavering faithfulness, but the king has come with cosmic authority. In these verses, you see Jesus tell these disciples to go into this village down to some barn and find this colt and untie it and tell these people that the king has need of it and they're going to let you take it and you're going to bring it back to me. And this is how everything is going to go. And this amazing, just casual, complete confidence in exactly how all this was going to go is a reminder that Jesus is the cosmic sovereign God of the whole entire universe. That this carpenter's son from Nazareth is the cosmic sun of eternal glory. And that from galaxies and distant planets and solar systems to cults tied upside, outside of stables in Jerusalem, He has complete control. Sovereign knowledge. He's aware of every atom and molecule in the universe. As Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, the Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. And it's not just Jerusalem. It's not just the Mount of Olives. It's not just a cult. It's you. It's me. It's our lives. It's our vocations. It's our homes. It's our families. It's, it's the inner workings of our heart and our ambitions and our motivations. He sees it all. He knows it all. He's sovereign over it all. And He's coming to remind us that He is our cosmic King with complete sovereign authority. But what's beautiful about this king is that in in these six verses, we see both a cosmic king with complete and universal sovereignty and this unwaveringly faithful king who's surrendered to the will of the Father. And as I see this king, I recognize in my own life that I'm so unlike this king. We are so unlike this king because where power and authority increase in our lives, so often come autonomy. And wielding that power to see our own way and our own kingdom advance in the world. And here is this completely authoritative, unrivaled, powerful king. Yielded, surrendered, and faithful. The king has come. He's come with cosmic authority as the sovereign over all things. May we respond in awe, in wonder, and in worship. This king also comes in stunning humility. Verses 7 through 8. So they come back, Jesus, and they've done what Jesus has said, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Verse 8, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. What Jesus does in these verses, the king of the universe is stunning. He's unmasking himself as God, as the unrivaled king of the universe, come to be the right ruler and king over all people, to be their savior and lord. And he doesn't mount a regal warhorse like a normal king would. No, he comes on a donkey, on a colt, a baby donkey. This king is coming in humility, and he's crowning the nature of his kingdom as one of humble service. He's coming in humility. He's coming near us, for us, with us, and where we are. He is this majestic king, and he's a meek king. As Jonathan Edwards says, he's highly exalted and humble in heart. He is simultaneously the triumphant king coming to claim victory, and the tender lamb claiming that victory for the father and for his people through the sacrifice of his life. That this cosmic sovereign ruler over all things, the one who has been God over all things from before time began, is is sovereign and righteous above all, that he would come, that he would humble himself, that he wouldn't stay far, but that he would come near to us, is shocking. It should cause us to, to have hearts that resound, Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a king. What other king does this? What other leader does this for you? What other leader becomes like you? What other leader becomes small because we're small, becomes weak as we just read in our confession. He became weak to be like us in our weakness. What a king. He pursued this humility. He could have come in any any kind of way, but he, he pursued and he intentionally sought after This kind of humility that would mark the nature of his kingdom. And the question for us is, are we pursuing a mentality and a posture of humility and service like this? Are we framing our lives and our behavior in the spheres that we live in around the the model and the posture of humility that our king is painting for us here? Because like Christ pursued this humility, as Ephesians reminds us, that he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he He threw that down in Philippians and he humbled himself. It took an intentional act, a decisive measure of a pursuit of humility for the plan of redemption and the work of salvation to ever be realized and grabbable for us. And similarly, we will not drift into humility. We will not drift into humility living this way, it will come from pursuit. A pursuit of humility, not a presumption of it. Why? Because we love ourselves. I love myself. I love my kingship. I love to to self-select other kings for me and build a, a happy little life of other kings. I love that. And you love that. We need a king, but we need a better king. You need a better king than you. You need a better king than Biden. You need a better team than your college sports team. You need a better king than whatever influencers you follow. You need a better king than whatever news channel you look at. You need a better source of life and wisdom and help and rescue. And it's coming through this king. It's coming from humility. We're going to ask, is this how we think about one another in the church with stunning, self-forgetful humility? Is this how we think about our hard-to-handle neighbors if you brought them with you this Sunday? Do not look left or right. Is this how you think about them? Is this, husbands, when you come down the stairs in the morning, is this how you think about engaging your wife and kids? Wives and moms, is this how you orient yourself toward life and kids and friends and one another? Kids, kids, Is this how you think about orienting yourself towards your siblings and your parents and your friends? In stunning humility, frankly, so often, for me, it's not. And I find myself responding to life much more like James and John, wanting exaltation and wanting everyone to know that I'm on the throne and that that's what really matters rather than embracing the humility of Bartimaeus and crying, have mercy on me, son of David. The King has come. The king has come and he's come in stunning humility and may that lead us prideful, arrogant, autonomous, self-kingdom building people to repentance. Would we repent of the prideful way that we build and seek to secure our own kingship over our life? But this king has not only come in stunning humility, he's also come bringing an unshakable kingdom. Verse 9, those who followed Now those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This declaration, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest is all tied to who these people have been looking for and who they sense him to be. It's all flowing out of this Davidic covenant that God has promised to David that he would be a king and there would be a a son on his throne forever. 2 Samuel 7, I will give you rest from all your enemies. I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. God was committed to bringing a son, one better than than Moses, one better than David, one better than Solomon, one better than any other person or king anyone had ever seen who would do what it took to be on this throne forever. Jesus is coming and he's declaring and he's demonstrating that he is this offspring. He is this son of David. He is this rightful heir to this forever throne. He is the reigning, long-awaited Messiah. The work that this king has come to Jerusalem to complete, it will have to go through the sacrifice of his life, but it will culminate in him raising from the dead. As we sang this morning, Christ is risen. And because he is risen, Satan and sin and death and depression and every enemy of God and God's people and God's church is underneath his feet. And because everything is up underneath his feet, his kingdom is unshakable. And if this last year and a half has shown us anything, it is that every horizontal king and kingdom that we can grab on in this earth is completely at its core shakable. We are a shakable people. You are not impressive. I am not impressive. You are not faithful. You're not humble. You're not resolute. You are not cosmically sovereign over anything. I am weak. We are weak. We are desperately in need of a better, more stable, more secure, more lasting, more hope-giving kingdom. Amen? Don't we want that? Don't our hearts long for something that just lasts Won't you just last? Isn't there a rock somewhere? Isn't there hope somewhere? And Jesus is saying, I'm going to do for you what you could never do or expect. I'm going to come as the sovereign king of the universe to lay down my life and to raise myself up again. Hebrews 12 says it this way, You've not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God. And therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Not me, not you, not Satan, not death, not politics, not nothing can shake the kingdom of our God. Nothing can stand in the way of the everlasting glory of this kingdom. The King has come. He's brought an unshakable kingdom. May we receive it with joy. May we receive His kingdom with joy. How? How? How can we receive this kingdom? How can we be with this king? He's sovereign. He's cosmic. He's glorious. He's faithful. He's everything I'm not. How on earth would I ever receive this king? Praise God. Praise God for verse 11. Because this king gives himself and his kingdom by grace. After they'd been shouting, Hosanna in the highest, he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. In verses 9 through 10, we're focused on the celebration and the exuberance of God's kingdom. And yet here in verse 11, we see that when Jesus stands at this mountain and he descends into this city, the first place that he goes is to the temple. Now, I don't, know they, I don't know about you, but if you're like all amped up to go do something really important, go into a new town, do something. I don't know that the first place you're going is to church, right? We've like, got, got a, a restaurant. We've got some scene we want to go check out. Jesus is going straight at the temple. Why? And why is that significant? Well, first, it's, it's significant because it signifies the nature of this king and his kingdom. It's a kingdom of glory. In Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel has a vision of this exact mountain and this exact temple. And in this vision... Ezekiel prophetically sees the glory of God leave that temple, and it leaves that temple, and it goes and rests at the top of the Mount of Olives, where Jesus is as he gets on the top of this donkey. And here, in this culmination of redemptive history, in this amazing moment where God has sent his son to this place, at this time, to this city, to do this thing, God himself, the place where God's glory dwells, the fullness of the deity of God, Jesus, is on this Mountain, And he is leaving to enter the temple. In Jesus, the glory of God is coming. In this King, in this Messiah, that glory has come again. His grace and his glory wrapped up in this man. And just as the tabernacle was replaced by the temple, now Jesus comes as the replacement of the temple. Indeed, he said, you will tear down the temple and I will build it up again in three days. He was now securing himself as the new meeting place for God and men. The new place of worship, the new means by which we might be made right with this king and his kingdom. Jesus going to the temple is important because it signifies that this kingdom is a kingdom of glory, but it also signifies that this kingdom is a kingdom of grace. Where does Jesus go? He goes to the the temple. Why? Because the purpose of the Son of God coming to earth, the purpose of Jesus doing all he's done, the purpose of him entering into this city is becoming clear. He's come here to be a sacrifice. What happens in the temple? We buy and purchase animals to sacrifice. He goes into this temple, which the outer court would be called the court of the Gentiles. And it's where all the pigeons and goats and lambs and all the things were bought. And this was was Passover. This would have been an absolute carnival of a moment with just droves of people all in this place, buying all these animals to sacrifice them on these altars to appease God for a while and and to atone for their sin. It would have been overwhelming what was happening, and in comes this king. In comes Jesus. And this declaration that this would be a Passover unlike any other Passover before, because here is Jesus, the God man, the one, the one embodiment of glory and grace, saying, God is here. Glory is here. Grace is here. Stop the sacrifices, stop the killing. I've come to do for you what you nor any of your forefathers nor any of your sacrifices ever could do. I have come as your king to rescue you, to lay my life down for you. He is the Passover lamb. This king was coming not to slay and subdue the kingdom of Rome with the sword, but to seek and save the lost with the sacrifice of his life. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't come on some external motivated mission to just be, be awesome but be distant from us? That he came to seek and save sinners? That he came to topple down our fragile kingdoms and to give to us himself and his? He wasn't coming to lay claim to an earthly throne in order to establish a worldly kingdom, but he was coming to lay down his life for a heavenly throne in order to establish an eternal, glorious kingdom of God. He was not primarily concerned with triumphing over the power structures of the government. He was concerned with tearing through the veil that separated man from God. That was our problem. Their problem wasn't Rome. Their problem was that they were distant from God. And our problem isn't the the ones primarily that we can grab horizontally in this life. Our problem is that day in and day out, we find ourselves... Being a king and seeking a kingdom that puts us in a collision course of animosity with the sovereign king of the universe. And this king has come to tear through that and to draw us to himself. The king has come. He's a king of grace and glory. May we lay down our sin, may we lay down our self-righteousness and rest in his finished work for us. The king has come and he and his kingdom are on a crash course with us this morning. So how will we respond? How will we respond right now before this moment of awareness that we're prone to wander, we're prone to reach for other kings and love other kings and pursue other kingdoms all while knowing they're fragile, they're futile and they're unable to do what they promised to do? Well, we really have two options. We can double down and fight for ourselves and our own kingdom or we can die to self and forsake our kingdoms and receive His. And our situation is the same as this crowd in this text. You see, there's sadly, there's this ruckus, celebratory crowd here and they're all jazzed up. Jesus is awesome and they're rah, rah ru palm branches, cloaks on the ground. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're pumped. But the problem is in a few days, at the cross, you know who's not there? This big crowd. You know where the next time we see a really ruckus crowd is making a big commotion? It's outside the trial, and they're not crying, Hosanna. They're crying, crucify him. And in this text is a warning. It's it's easy to hear about an awesome, faithful, cosmic king and say, yes, awesome. you, I love him. But we're prone to give lip service to the king, and yet when we realize that He's come to die and call us to die. We find ourselves more ready to cry crucify Him than to cry Hosanna. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, because we don't like to die. We don't like to submit to another. We don't like delayed reward. We do not like being told that we're not awesome. And yet, this faithful King has come and He's forcing us to reckon. Will we run after self and what we can grab in this earth or will we release that and will we rest in this king who's come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves? A faithful king has come. He is the sovereign king of the universe. He is full of glory and grace. His name is Jesus. He has done what no one ever would have expected and never could accomplish. He's laid down his life. He has risen again. He has begun and he will complete in fullness his kingdom. And the amazing news is he's inviting you in. He wants to be where you are. He came in stunning humility because he wants you with him. He wants you in His kingdom. He wants you outside of the endless despair and letdown and sorrow and grief and brokenness that you and I bring on ourselves and one another by our relentless pursuit of our own kingdoms. God has made that so clear to me in the last year and a half. Drew, you want to seek your own kingdom? Great, go there. And it may look beautiful for a while, but it's going to lead to carnage and decay and emptiness and brokenness. You want to see redemption? You want to see beauty? You want to see glory that's unshakable and lasts forever? You die to yourself. And you worship me, a king far greater than yourself. May we run from our feudal kingdoms to rest in His. And Harvest Church, may our entire lives be lived in reflection and worship of this King. May our whole beings, our whole relationships be yielded to Him. Would the anthem over our lives and our church be a resounding, authentic, grace-bought Hosanna. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Or said another way, as we like to say around here often, here's to the King. Let's pray. God, we need this text because we need a king and we frequently seek after and secure notions of kingship and kingdom in ourselves and in others around us and it's leading to decay and devastation and brokenness. We're desperate. We're desperate for a a humble, faithful, righteous, sovereign king who would come. And humility to rescue us. Even now, Holy Spirit, would you rescue us? Would you remove the veil from our eyes to see the futility of our own kingdoms? Would you remove the blinders and would you welcome us to rest in and rejoice in you as our King? God, would you do that for our joy? Would you do that for your glory? Thank you that you've come. God, come all the more, even in these moments, come. Be our King, be our Lord, and may the true depths of our soul cry, Hosanna, blessed are you, Jesus, our King, who's come in the name of the Lord. In your name we pray, amen.